Welcome to the First Church Message of the Week podcast. Thanks for listening in. We've all heard metaphor in scripture, but do we use our imagination like the authors of the Bible did? Some scripture even demands understanding of metaphor. God as fortress, as rock, as a bird sheltering its chicks in a storm, and even as light. Being a good Bible reader can sometimes require a creative imagination. In this week's message of the week, Reverend Dr. Joel Allen challenges us to use our imagination. He directs us to many places in scripture that use creative and imaginative words to describe God, his word, and his work in the world. Here is the First Church Message of the Week. it's great to see you all and be able to share one last talk with you all. Um, And and today I want to talk to you about this title of the sermon is Use Your Imagination, which is kind of an unusual title for a sermon. I don't have official scripture to read. I've got several. So you notice in your bullet and there's this uh, yellow sheet that has uh, six different passages with three metaphors that we're going to talk about. So you all know the difference between a metaphor and a simile, I suppose. A metaphor is where there's language that that compares one thing to another, but it does so in a very powerful way. So uh, in the Bible, it says God is light. Well, that would be a metaphor uh, because God isn't actually light. God isn't literally light, but God is kind of figuratively light. In other words, light is like God in some very important ways. And there are other metaphors. So I'm going to talk to you about three important metaphors for God that are in the Bible. And um, I, I don't know if you, when you were a kid, you were able to, to just play games in your mind. Like when I was a kid, I could play for hours just by myself with toy soldiers, you know, the little green kind. I, I could just play for hours. I could redo the Battle of the Bulge, you know, and, and uh, I just was so fascinated with, with uh, being able to play in an imaginative way. And the Bible calls upon our imagination. There's tons of places. I mean, they're all over where the Bible calls upon us to kind of think imaginatively. And I actually have kind of a summary statement for this whole sermon. My summary statement is something like this. Your relationship with God can be enriched through cultivating the power of your imagination. So your relationship with God can be enriched through empowering your imagination. And so um, so there are all kinds of images. We sang the Stronghold House uh, song a moment ago, and that really draws on the image, which is all over the book of Psalms, uh, of God as a stronghold. I mean, you think about that. At some point, something like this must have happened. Um, there must have been a battle, right? And... Uh, so an, a city is getting attacked and the people kind of enter into the walled city. They build walls around their cities. And so inside that walled city, they are able to, to uh, protect themselves against their enemies. And the enemies are attacking the city, but they're not able to take it because there's a big, powerful wall around the city that happened regularly, right? That was a common thing that occurred. And of course, you can think of movies where that kind of thing is depicted. But at some point, someone must have said, hmm, 
God is kind of like that. God is kind of like a powerful fortress that protects me from harm. In some sense, God is like my fortress. And so that language starts to be used and it's now very commonly used. And so in the song today, you probably didn't even think about it. We're singing about God as my fortress, right? And we kind of know what that means. But the fact is somebody had to come up with that metaphor. Someone had to take these two things and put them together. And so someone must have had this experience and then thought, huh, God is like that. God has protected me in other ways. And they put those thoughts together and they, and now we have this image of God being a fortress or another one that's mentioned. In fact, the main passage that I'm going to use is this, uh, uh, Psalm 36, nine. And in the earlier service, I'm not going to do it this time, but in the earlier service, we read over these like four or five verses and we just counted every one of the images, the metaphors that are in that passage. And they're like seven or eight, depends on how you want to count them, just in a few verses. The Bible is chock full of metaphors and similes where things in this world are compared to God and your relationship, your relationship with God. So, uh, but one of them that I want to mention that's just right in the context is it says, uh, for you are, a, 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 we hide under the shadow of your wings. Now, what that is, is that someone must have noticed that uh, that large like raptor type birds have a tendency if there's if they have young chicks and there's a big storm coming through they would they, they'll gather their chicks within their wings they'll literally take those wings and protect those little baby chicks uh, to keep them safe and from free from harm and so people must have noticed that and thought Hmm. God is kind of like that too. God is. And so that language, you are, we hide ourselves under the shadow of your wings. Why does it say shadow of your wings? Well, it's, it's referring to that tendency of raptor birds to protect their young under their wings. So somebody had to put that together in their mind. And now it's all over the Bible. That language of hiding in the shadow of your wings is very common language. Even Jesus in the New Testament prays over Jerusalem and even cries and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have taken you under my wings, but you wouldn't come. And again, it's that image. So it's in the New Testament too. Very common image, but somebody had to kind of piece that together. And we read over it, we don't even think about it. But we should think about it and, and kind of stop for a minute and unravel the thing and really go deep with it rather than just kind of read it without even thinking about it. So um, so I'm going to talk about three uh, basic metaphors for God that are in the Bible that that demand our imagination. And the first one is light. God is light. Uh, and, and the main passage is this thir- uh, Psalm 36, 9. For with you is a spring of life, your light shall, in your light shall we see light. And I just want to point out that not only do we have light as a metaphor, in this one verse, we also have another metaphor, which, right? The me- other metaphor is the metaphor of water. Like God isn't actually a spring of water. God isn't literally a spring of water. But somebody noticed, oh, you know what? You know, when I'm really thirsty and I go and... 
I take a big drink out of that spring and it just makes me feel so alive and so filled with life. You are that. Within you is the spring of life. Like I can come to God and and take a big drink somehow spiritually. There's something like that, like getting a drink of water out of a stream that just gives makes me so refreshed. God is something like that. My relationship with God is something like that. And so uh, so the metaphor of God being light, about God being a spring of life. And then, so that's the first one. But the second one is God is, um, is light. In, for in you, uh, in your light, we shall see light. So let's just talk about light as a metaphor for God. And of course, we kind of recognize that every Sunday when we come up and light the candles. We're recognizing that this is probably one of the most important metaphors for God in the Bible. God is light. That literally is said in the next verse here. By the way, each one of these are six verses. Each two of them relate to different metaphors. So the light metaphor, and I underlined it, the light metaphor is the first two The wind metaphor is the second two, and the bow in the clouds is the last two. So, uh, so we're looking at the first one. So, um, so, and this is the yellow sheet that's in your bulletin. So this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So we have two verses there that refer to God being light. So what would that mean? Uh, you know, in the ancient world, lights were, we don't have lights like we have here that really broadcast a lot of light. I have several of those little handheld uh, lamps that uh, a while back I, you know, put olive oil in one of them and got a, got a little cloth and rolled it up and stuck it in there and got it, you know, made a wick out of it. <clears throat> and on a dark you know, after the, I went around the house and turned out all the lights where I was just to see how much light was produced by these lights that would have been extremely common in the ancient world. So I lit that little wick and it produced a lot more smoke and stunk more than I thought it would. But it was just olive oil that, that they would have been burning. But it didn't produce much light. I mean, it would hardly be enough to read a book. It was, but, I mean, but it was enough so you could look across a room and see that it was a chair over there. <coughs> but, uh, but it's just a, a little bit of light. But, you know, in the ancient world, once the sun goes down, that's it, right? There's uh, even up to a hundred and some odd years ago. You think of that. It's just a several, you know, early, late part of the 1800s where the shift, I don't remember exactly when, but where the shift from, you know, a lit gas light to an electrical light that you can turn on with a switch. I mean, that radically changed the world. And uh, so even, uh, so there was before, you know, a hundred years ago, back to time immemorial, People were burning things in their houses to produce light. And, and it didn't produce a lot of light, but you just think, imagine, you know, how powerful that would be to, you know, you light this thing and you walk across the house and you can kind of see what's over there at night. You just, this is all you've got, right? But other than the stars. So, um, and the moon, right? The moon can produce quite a bit of light. So you're, you, you realize, oh, the, this light, protects me from falling over things. And this light makes it so that I can be more aware of my surroundings. And so at some point, somebody had to go, wow, God is kind of like light. 
And that language started to be used. So now it's fairly common. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But what would that mean? God is light. Because we know it does, it's not literally true. God isn't actually light. But when we think about God, we associate God with light very often. When you just imagine, like, what would it be like to die and go stand before Jesus and you're standing there in the presence of God and you, you know, God is, how do you picture God that you, you know, when you think about your own death? More than likely, you would picture God as being like glorious and light, right? You think bright light, you know, and when you hear the, those stories like, uh, different stories about people that die and come back kind of thing. Very often they talk about going toward a light. So God is very much associated with light, but but when the Bible says God is light, it probably means, you know, God provides some direction for our life in some way. God provides some wisdom so that we don't fall run into things. God is gives has practical value in my life because God provides direction and moral clarity. So you might struggle with like, should I do this or should I do that? They, this one, you know, is easier, but it might be wrong. And that one is harder, but it might be the right thing to do. And you pray about it and God provides direction. And you suddenly you're like, oh, I know what I need to do now. And so the, the psalmist must have thought, you know, God is like that. God provides direction. God is light. And, and, and it's interesting that C.S. Lewis, a real famous Christian writer, once said, I believe in God the way I believe in the sun. Not only because I can see it, but by it I see everything else. In other words, the sun, he believes in God like, the, like he believes in the sun, not because I have to be going out and looking at it, but because everything else is brought is I can see and understand everything through the light of the sun. That's the more important part, rather than just kind of looking up and seeing the sun. The more important value of believing in God is that God kind of gives meaning to life in a powerful way. Like when you believe in God, you believe that people are created in God's image and they have incredible value. But if you're you know, don't believe in God. You don't have that because people have, were just the result of atoms banging together for billions of years. What gives us deep value and purpose and meaning? Well, when you believe in God, you get all that stuff. It kind of comes with the territory. And so God is light. Believing in God is light. God gives direction and understanding to us just by existing in our believing in God and being related properly to God. So God is like very important image that the New Testament uses. And the second one is God is wind. God is wind. Um, so yesterday was such a beautiful day. And one of the things that made it nice is there was just a little bit of a breeze, right? So it wasn't just kind of an oppressive day. There was a little bit of a breeze. I went for a bike ride and really enjoyed myself. Although I had this kind of a funny experience. I borrowed, I'm house sitting for Jen and I checked with her to see if I could ride her bike. And she said, yes. And, but the seat was a little too low. So, uh, and, and you know, I've always been that person that's like, that person needs to raise their seat because, you know, because you're supposed to have the seat so that your leg fully extends. And, um, and so I'm always criticizing other people like, they need to raise that seat. Their leg is that can't extend their leg out. 
And, but so I was that guy riding around town with a seat that I couldn't, you know, extend my leg out. I didn't have the tools to, to change it. So at any rate, uh, but as I was out yesterday, I just really enjoyed the breeze. The wind is, you know, on a hot day, there's nothing like just a little bit of a breeze to come by. And you imagine in the ancient world just how, you know, if you're on a boat, on a ship, and you're roaring, rowing across the Sea of Galilee, it's hard work and there's no breeze and you're out there, you know, just slaving away in the hot sun. And then a breeze kicks up and you're able to throw up a sail and suddenly everything, you're, suddenly you're, you're whip across and you're at the other side. Uh, that experience must have, they must, someone must have thought, what a mysterious power that is. Where does it come from? This thing that goes through the air that causes energy that we can kind of capture for our purposes that experience, someone at some point said, God is kind of like that. God is kind of like a wind on a hot day when I'm slaving away out in the field and, and it's so hot and oppressive and there a breeze starts to, to move through the air and suddenly I feel in, refreshed and invigorated and, and I can use that wind to, you know, power a windmill perhaps to get some water to feed my flocks or whatever it is, this powerful, energizing, mysterious thing we call wind. Someone at some time said, huh, God is kind of like that wind. There's something about God that's like a wind. In uh, Genesis chapter one, verse three, it says, God, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form and darkness was over the deep and God's wind swept <laughs> over the waters. Now the word wind in Hebrew is ruach, which actually means spirit too. The same word, ruach, means either wind or spirit, depending on context. And the fact is, in many contexts, it's hard. They kind of means the same. Like here, some translations, if you have some Bible, will will say, uh, will actually say, and God's spirit swept over the waters. So you might think, why does that one Bible say God's spirit swept over the waters? In the exact same place in another Bible says God's wind swept over the waters. Well, the reason is the word in Hebrew is the same word. Who's to say what it means? It's, it probably means both at the same time. And so, uh, so somehow God is like that wind and, and the, which is mentioned in sweeping over the waters. God's creative energy, mysterious power that can, we can capture to do important things in the world. And then Jesus, even in, in John chapter, um, uh, three, the famous John three sixteen, where you know, um, where the one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Right before three sixteen, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, "God's spirit blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going." And the same is true for everyone that's born of the Spirit. So again, wind and spirit. Uh, God's spirit blows. The it could literally say the word. Remember in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, can be translated either wind or spirit. In other words, you could, some translations could say, God's wind blows wherever it wishes. This translation says God's spirit, but it's the same word. So in other words, wind is deeply associated with God's spirit. They're connected ideas. So somebody connected that together. And now in the whole biblical trajectory, we have all these instances where God's power is spoken of as 
a wind. Now use your imagination on that. Just think about the wind as being kind of a reminder. Uh, You could almost think of it as like a sacramental reminder, like this way that we can experience divine grace through the world, through the physical nature of the world. Two ways we've already described. When we look at a candle, we should be able to think about God's God's power, God's clarifying power. God's, God is like light in a deep way. What does that mean? So you might want to just spend some time thinking about that. How is God like light? Well, like, you know, light envision, it gives us, helps us to see. So anyway, so God is like light. God is like wind. And then the last one is a little bit different, but God is a bow, a rainbow. Now, um, so the first verse here is uh, Genesis uh, 9, 13. I have placed my bow in the clouds. And there's a Noah up here a minute ago. This is a very end of the Noah story. So right at the very end of the Noah story, right after God has, uh, you know, sent this worldwide flood. And, you know, so the world is com- completely transformed and it's uh, the, the ark is on the top of Mount Ararat and, and then at the end of the whole Noah story, it says a bow appeared in the clouds. And this is where God says, I have placed my bow. Now we think of it as a rainbow, but I want to uh, encourage you to not think it is a rainbow. It looks like, I mean, it would be, it's a reference to a rainbow, right? But when the, the word bow is in Hebrew, there's no rain on it. It's just, it's the word is keshet in Hebrew. And a keshet is a bow, like as in bow and arrow, that kind of bow. In other words, when you see the bow, when you see a rainbow, the, what, what is being said here is something like this. When he says, I have put my bow in the clouds, he's saying something like, it looks like a bow, like in bow, right? It has that shape, the arc that you get when you pull a bow. And the word in Hebrew actually is bow, not rainbow. It's a bow. And so God is putting God's bow up in the cloud, up in the sky. So the idea is God is saying, like, we've just had the experience of the flood. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to respond to human sinfulness in a violent way, in a militaristic way of destroying enemies. I'm not going to do that. So God makes a covenant to not, which is very problematic theologically, but we'll just kind of move on. We can't do it. But still, it's uh, God has made a covenant to not respond that way, but God is going to put this bow in the clouds like setting apart, like a military instrument, putting it aside, saying, I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not responding to human sin through killing them, you know, through a bow. Military, so the bow represents a militaristic response where God in the flood destroys human sinfulness and just wipes the world clean. I'm not going to do that again. So the bow is like representing a military or a, a violent response. And God, so now God is saying, I'm committed to nonviolence, not going down that road. I'm committed to nonviolence. And so the idea is from this point on, God is like saying, rather than respond in violence, I'm going to respond in nonviolence to human sin. 
I'm going to take it into myself rather than bringing destruction on the earth. So the bow represents God's commitment. I'm putting that away, the violent response. I'm going to respond in love to human sinfulness so that I kind of bear the brunt of it myself. So I know this is a little bit pushing it, but you can all, you can actually see this as kind of a symbol of the cross. Because as a result of this, God's like saying, I'm not going to, I'm going to take the brunt of human sinfulness into myself now. That's my choice. And so what does that lead to? That lead, the cross is the ultimate place where God uh, took human sinfulness and paid the price himself rather than responding in violence. And so, so I know that's a lot, but, uh, but, and what's interesting about this is when we get to the very end of the Bible, so we have this bow in the beginning where God's committing himself to a nonviolent response and a, a, a peaceful response to sin. The very end of the Bible, a bow reappears in the book of Revelation. Once I was in the spirit-inspired trance, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on the throne. One seated there was like looked like so the God seated on the throne looks like jasper and carnelian. Surrounding the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. By the way, Lucas was just told me that he uh, went and looked up um, jasper and carnelian. Carnelian is a bright red, semi-precious stone, an orange. Yeah, a fiery orange, semi-precious stone. So I, I couldn't believe I did it. So I appreciate Lucas doing that for me. Uh, so, so in other words, the idea here is at the very end of the biblical story, John gets a vision of like God's ultimate purpose. And so in the vision is a throne room where God is like seated down, seated down again. In other words, it's like the whole... Um, the whole world that has gone so wrong by sin, now God is showing it's God's going to defeat sin in the end. And, and it's, it's a vision that God is going to defeat the power of sin. And this right world is going to be reestablished. So it's a vision of what God intends to do to, to end, uh, the destruction of sin, to bring things, to kind of put the world to rights. And in this vision, he sees a throne room where God is seated on a throne and there's all these beautiful semi-precious stones. And what is there? There's a bow there, a bow. In other words, the commitment that God made to respond in love and faithfulness rather than in violence is brought up at the very end and like, look, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm putting the world to rights. I, God's beauty and loveliness and rightness, a world where there's no violence and evil and crying and sin, that world is going to come. God is going to reestablish the right world and, and it's going to be beautiful. And here's the vision, John. This is what God's going to do. And the bow there again symbolizes God's commitment to humanity to bring us to, into the right place, uh, to, to put the world to rights without the violence of, of sin, of the, the violence of, of the, represented by the bow. So the bow is, speaks to us a promise. Even in the colors of the rainbow, we see a promise of God's commitment to us, God's uh, loving intentions, God's covenant to, uh, to always respond to the world in loving ways rather than in violent ways. So, so just as we close, 
God is light, a candle flame, warm and inviting. When you see a candle, I want you to think about God as a warm, inviting light. God is wind, powerful, mysterious, full of energy and and uh, powerful in its capability. And God is a bow or rainbow full of color, a reminder of God's promise to us to renew the world and to bring it to a place of perfect beauty again. So think those three images, our imaginations can really delve into those as we saw with John, with this vision of the courtroom, talk about imagination, right? A vision of a courtroom with jasper and carnelian and, and emerald and a beautiful bow and a throne room. And God's like saying, I'm putting the world to rights. I'm committed to this world and I'm going to bring you out to the place where you ought to be. In spite of all the sin that's occurred, God is going to remake this world and make it right again. And uh, we have that hope. One, one of the things I like to tell students is to be a Christian demands hope. But the hope that's demanded by Christianity is almost crazy. In other words, we have to be virtually crazy with hope. Like you have to just stop and say, God is going to fix this world. I mean, can you believe that? God is going to fix this world. God is committed to fixing this world. That's really what the whole Bible is. It's a story of God's commitment to taking this world and putting it back to rights. And it, to believe that, you just have to be a little bit crazy. because, But crazy with hope. It takes an incredible amount of hopefulness to believe that. And so that's the, the, uh, the message. God is light. God is wind. God is a covenanted promise to put this world to rights, no matter how bad it may seem. So uh, let's close in a prayer and just ask it, that God would help us to stir our imaginations so that we could, um, could encounter God in deeper ways through these metaphors. Lord, thank you for the powerful hopefulness of Scripture that, uh, that looks forward to a day when things are put to right. Help us to be a little bit crazy with hope, to be deeply, deeply hopeful people, and to deeply believe that you have really good plans for this world and that you intend to put it to rights. Help us to encounter your light, help us to encounter your the wind of your spirit, and help us to encounter the co covenanted promise of renewal that you're represented by a rainbow. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the First Church Message of the Week. To stay connected, subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook. For more information like our church calendar, worship times, and upcoming events, visit our website at watertownfirst.church. This has been the First Church Message of the Week.